I will speak to you in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Water. Growing up in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, we had water and we had plenty of it. We had creeks and streams. We had the ever-flooding Cumberland River that literally runs all the way around my dad's farm in Knox County, Kentucky. We had lots of ponds and we even had a few nice lakes, both the natural ones and the lakes that the Tennessee Valley Authority created for us when they dammed up some streams and rivers, flooded a few hollers or two. I definitely felt I had good knowledge and understanding of water growing up in my home state. And then I moved here to Florida. Living here in Jacksonville now for 10 years has given me a whole new understanding of what it's like to live in true close proximity to water at all times. And I'm not just talking about the mighty Atlantic Ocean out at the beach. The first time I drove across the great Buckman Bridge from Orange Park over to Mandarin, I got my first real understanding of what a true great American river can look like. To live in Jacksonville, a city with a river truly running right through the middle of it with the ocean just a few miles or so to the east is to know about water and how it truly affects just about every aspect of your day-to-day life. I know I've told many of you before the story of how just after I arrived in Jacksonville back on 2010, a good friend of mine was sitting next to me on a bus as we were traveling from one of the hotels to the cathedral downtown during our annual diocesan convention. And he told me that if I were going to live here in Jacksonville, I had to learn the bridges of this city by name. And he could not have been more correct in that very wise advice because as we all know who live in this part of the city, whether you're going downtown or out to the beach or up to the airport or just taking the bypass around to get to Interstate 10 and go out to Camp Weed, you must eventually cross over the St. John's River on one of these great bridges. So I started right then and there learning my Jacksonville bridges. I instantly knew the Fuller Warren Bridge because it's the major bridge on I-95. And I knew the Acosta Bridge because it gets us from here in San Marco over to Riverside. And of course, I knew the Main Street Bridge, which because it's a giant drawbridge, occasionally can slow you down if you're running late for a meeting with your bishop. Then there's the Hart Bridge that crosses the river from downtown, passes over the Episcopal School of Jacksonville, and eventually connects with Beach Boulevard. And of course, there's Matthew Bridge, the Matthews Bridge, which I'm sure many of you remember got hit by a boat back in 2013, so I tried to avoid crossing the Matthews Bridge at all costs if I can avoid it. And there's the Dames Point Bridge on Interstate 295 that is easy to remember because of its distant location and because of its harp-like cables that extend up to the top of those columns and support the bridge itself. Finally, there's the bridge I've already mentioned, the 3.1 mile long Buckman Bridge. And that, of course, makes seven. Now, I know there are probably some of you who have other important bridges that you would like to add to that list. But those seven, I think, are the undisputed landmarks 
of the city of Jacksonville, and they are all essential to the daily life of a vast number of us here in Duval County, including our dedicated deacon who has to cross one of those bridges every single Sunday just to get here from over in the far distant west side. To live near a body of water like the St. John's is to take its strong flow and the bridges that cross it very seriously. And water is important in lots of other parts of human life as well, isn't it? Most of us can go quite a while without food. I need to remind myself of that quite often. But Mahatma Gandhi famously fasted for 21 days when he was in his 70s. And many human beings have fasted for much longer than that, either by choice or not by choice. But when it comes to water, even if you are in very good physical and mental condition, three to five days is the most a human being can live without water. And even though we as a species have now conquered the air above us and gone all the way to the moon, the first thing humanity had to conquer from the moment we began to stand and move on two legs was the mighty rivers and oceans of the earth, which were as terrifying as the darkness of outer space to early peoples and civilizations. Many who went down to the deep simply ceased to exist altogether for those in the ancient world. They went under the water and they were no more. The ancient monsters in some of humanity's earliest origin myths and stories, Tiamat, the great dragon, and that great serpent Leviathan mentioned by name in both Psalm 74 and Psalm 104 were both frightening creatures that first existed in the sea. Even today, we have our own mysteries of the deep ocean depths that conjure up the same primal fears that connect us to our ancient ancestors. Chief among them from the last century, of course, was the enduring tale of the Titanic. At the time of its launch, the greatest ship that humanity had ever produced, and then like an inflatable raft, sinking straight away after it hit the iceberg and not being seen again for nearly a hundred years. And perhaps ready to take the place of the Titanic for us in the 21st century is the mystery of the Malaysian air flight 370, which disappeared into the vast Indian Ocean, we think, back in 2014 and still has not been located. The Malaysian air tragedy, like the Titanic, remind us that even with our incredible technology, with our satellites and global positioning devices, the great oceans of the earth can still swallow something up and we may never ever see it again. And if you open your Bible this morning, as I already mentioned from the sea monsters that show up in the Psalms, you will find a tremendous amount of references to water and its importance in all facets of life for both the ancient Hebrew peoples up through the time of Jesus and into the time of the early church. From the very opening verses in the book of Genesis, it takes no less than the one true God to move across the darkness of the deep waters and separate them by creating the expanse of the heavens and then creating the dry land on the earth. Later in the Old Testament, what is perhaps the earliest foretelling of Jesus' resurrection comes when the prophet Jonah, trying to flee from God, is cast out of a ship into the sea and swallowed by a great fish. Now, as many times as we as children saw the cartoon imagery of Jonah in the belly of the whale, 
If we'd really heard that story of Jonah in ancient Israel, we would have understood immediately that Jonah's disappearance into the belly of a fish and into the depths of the dark sea was unquestionably his absolute and utter destruction and death. So when early Christians began to inscribe images of Jonah on ancient Christian burial sites and churches, it was because they knew that in the end, Jonah is suddenly spat out alive onto land after three days. And they recognized that it was God's first revelation of what God would do when Christ walked out of his dark tomb all those years later and began the rebirth and restoration of God's creation. And when we arrive at the New Testament, Jesus revisits Jonah in so many different ways, showing his own vast superiority over the water's darkness, walking over top of it on foot and calming stormy seas with only his words. But perhaps the greatest story of all time in the Judeo-Christian tradition that symbolizes God's incredible power over the dark waters is the story we just heard again in this morning's reading from the Hebrew Bible. That wonderful, frightening, awe-inspiring story of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. Who except maybe the youngest of you out there doesn't instantly close your eyes and envision a bearded, wild-haired Charleston Heston holding up his staff and asking God to drive back the water of the sea with a strong wind. That was the magic of Hollywood, if you can believe it, back in the year of our Lord, 1956, giving us, through the earliest of special effects, our first vivid picture on the screen of what that great Bible story must have truly looked like. Think of it again with me. The Egyptians coming in hot pursuit with their horses and their chariots and their weapons of mass destruction. And the Israelites moving forward in horror, suddenly hemmed in and trapped by great waters they cannot cross at the Red Sea. Hemmed in and trapped, that is, until God himself in a great pillar of cloud moves between the Egyptians and the Israelites, shielding them until Moses can take his position, raise again that wooden staff and call on God to send a mighty wind to carve out a dry path of solid ground between walls, we're told, of water on the left side and the right side that cannot fall upon the people. And it is then that the Israelites walk through the sea to safety on dry land. It's one of those great stories that continues to ring out across all of the ages of our human existence. It speaks of a God that will defend us a God that loves us and a God that's willing to do what seems like the impossible to save his people from destruction. For the Jewish people, of course, this story, along with the great stories of Moses and Exodus from Egypt, will give national identity and a sense of hope through century after century of Jewish persecution and dispersion, as well as through the horrifying years of that last century that are remembered as the Holocaust. And for the growing Christian communities after Jesus, it will become one of our own great symbols of what God is willing to do for all of God's chosen people. In the church through the centuries, that amazing story of God parting the Red Sea and delivering his chosen people to safety, not just from Egyptians, but from death itself, 
is a very important part now of how we as Christians move from sin into rebirth and new life through the sacrament of baptism. It is an essential piece of our baptismal ritual written into the thanksgiving over the water on page 306 in the Book of Common, Common Prayer. And it's also part of the reading that we just heard on the morning of the great Easter vigil. We have nine to 12 readings we can choose on that Easter Sunday morning, but only one is required for us to hear every year at that first sunrise service on Easter Sunday morning. And that story is the story of the parting of the Red Sea. When I pronounce that blessing over the water in every baptism and hear it again on Easter Sunday morning, the words are meant to remind all of us as Christians of all the many times that God moved through the most frightening of things, the depths of the sea and the waters to save us. For God moves over it in the beginning. God moves through it to lead his chosen people to safety at the time of the Exodus. And in God moves in it when Jesus himself is baptized in the Jordan River by John. And God acts with it continually for us, turning the dark waters that we face in the life of fear and death into living waters in which we are fully and totally reborn. As I point out to every family who brings their child in to be baptized, sometimes to their surprise, sometimes to their horror, The waters of baptism have never been about a cleansing ritual or initiation for your child. The waters of baptism have always signified, first and foremost, above everything else, their own impending death and burial. For we must always remember that when the children of Israel were chased by the Egyptians to the shore of the Red Sea, they knew that those dark waters meant certain death, either by sword or the abyss. But what does God do? God moves and he begins, as he did with Jonah, to pull his people through those waters, through the fear of death, and back into the life that is eternal. The Israelites walked through what should have been destruction and came into new life. And so we as Christians follow them into those same waters during our own baptism, trusting that God will deliver us and will mark us as God's own forever. And brothers and sisters, that truly is the greatest story ever told. Truly the best news that we can find in the scripture. For as we stand in our own face of dark waters today, the dark waters of sickness, the dark waters of division, natural and unnatural disasters, violence, fear and constant worry, we must always hold fast and remember that it is God who moves on the waters It is God who separates them, and it is Jesus who is the greatest bridge we have that sustains us and supports us in the greatest of worry and fear from this life on earth to eternal life that God promised us in creation. Through Jesus, nothing can ever drown our hope and nothing can ever rob us of salvation, especially not death. And to that we can say, thanks be to God. Amen.